Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. Today, we're talking about Wormhole. We're covering it with Henrik Hofstadt and Ryan Watkins. Wormhole is a bridge between Solana, Binance Smart Chain, Terra, and what was the last one? Ethereum. So it's got about 900 million in TVL right now. It's a complementary protocol to IBC. We'll find out about how that is. And Ryan is here. He's a research analyst at Masari. He's going to be covering the market analyst's perspective about this potential. Henrik is going to talk to us about all the technical possibilities that we could use Wormhole for. So if you guys won't mind giving an intro about yourselves very quickly. Thanks for having me. My background is originally in software engineering, cybersecurity. In 2017, I dropped into the blockchain rabbit hole and have been exploring proof of stake systems since then. Started Certus One in 2018, uh, where we spent most of the time in the beginning working on Cosmos, doing security research, breaking the protocol a couple of times, but then building up to be infrastructure providers to more chains. And last year, we started building the Wormhole protocol initially as a token bridge between Ethereum and Solana to bring liquidity into the, the ecosystem that just started to grow around the time. And we got acquired by Jump Trading uh, earlier this year, roughly May this year. And since then, we've done a ton of work on uh, trying to grow from just being a token bridge to being a message passing protocol that can essentially allow chains to communicate and essentially extend the reach of IBC in worlds where the technology due to limitations in lifetime. So we can dive into that later, uh, not expand right now. Yes, I'm a senior research analyst at Masari, where I've been at for two years, just doing kind of like broad coverage across the industry, but specifically focused on DeFi, stablecoins, and I guess a little bit more recently over the past, maybe six to 12 months, uh, interoperability. Ryan provided a little tweet storm a couple months ago before V2 had launched, and that was what got me onto his perspective, and that's what I wanted you to talk about. Maybe you could start there with that kind of high-level overview of what your thesis was on Wormhole? It was within the context of Terra doing two things. One, enabling uh, Columbus 5, which was a network upgrade it did in September. And then the second was Wormhole V2, or at least the front end going live so that people could start using Wormhole to bridge assets from Terra to other blockchains. The reason why it was exciting is because, and I think for a long time, many of these different ecosystems have been isolated. And that was fine when most of the activity that was happening in DeFi was just on Ethereum. But today, when there's so many different ecosystems that now have economic activity, you know, whether it be different chains in the Cosmos ecosystem or Solana or Avalanche or Terra, what have you, it's imperative that people can actually move between these different ecosystems without having to go to an exchange or some kind of other you know, third parties to do so. So one of the reasons why I thought it was exciting is because you know, for Terra, you could have USC start to expand multi-chain, right? So you could have USC be issued on Solana, on Ethereum, right? And you lock a lot of new utility when you have kind of cross-chain asset transfers and also cross-chain messaging as well. There's like different applications you can build on top of them. And I think really to, to drive the point home is the way I think about it is you know, what made Ethereum's ecosystem so compelling over early on was the idea of like composability. The idea that all these different applications in DeFi could work together to create something that's better than some of the parts. Today, most of these other blockchains, they're almost like isolated ecosystems. But if you can now compose them together, then you could also create something that's better than some of its parts as well. And I think that's a big opportunity with Wormhole and other interoperability protocols. A big overarching theme of this podcast is that where we're headed is the internet of blockchains. How we get there is kind of this clunky zigzag roadmap where, you know, we have things like Axelar, right? We had them on in the last podcast and then we have Wormhole as well. And these are all sort of ad hoc bridges and we're not kind of at the stage we want to be where we have just a standardized protocol to build on top of. It's all sort of different and kind of bespoke. and so. 
Wormhole does cover those four large layer ones that we talked about. And whereas Axlar covers, you know, Cosmos and proof of work chains, but they're also intended to be a generalized bridge. And so how do you compare, you know, the wormhole bridge here to Axelar's bridge? And do you think further on down the roadmap, they're ultimately going to be the same? We fundamentally agree in our approaches of fundamentally basing on cross-chain communication. That's all based on the idea, and, and Cosmos has coined that term of the Internet of Blockchains, And then we've been deep in the Cosmos ecosystem. And what we kind of realized was just like in the real world with internet coverage, there is now a protocol, there's a technology stack for communication between chains. But just like in the real world, there's a couple of areas that aren't that well connected yet, partially due to technical limitations. When we look at IBC from a technical perspective, we always have that requirement for a light client for chains to fundamentally be able to trust each other. And I think this is what, what technologies like, like Axela and Wormhole fundamentally try to achieve is enable and establish trust between chains so that then protocols on top can enable communication. And I think IBC is a strong candidate. And I mean, one of the, the candidates that has seen most development and research go into of how the, the higher level protocol could look like. And then below that, the trust layer is what I would call the thing that Wormhole is enabling is essentially Wormhole is, is the fabric on which IBC flows, over which IBC flows. So you could establish IBC over Wormhole, which is actually something we've been working on designing and actually start implementation just about a month ago after a very extensive like research phase. But I think fundamentally, the what that we're trying to achieve in cross-chain messaging is similar. And then uh, where our approaches differ is in the actual execution, where with the wormhole, the fundamental principle is that we use a multi-sig of 19 guardians slash validators that verify each of these chains. In a model like Axelar, they're using very complex and advanced cryptographic primitives so I think where our approach is a bit different from a lot of other protocols is that we went with the like most well-tested and most stable cryptographic primitive and made the protocol extensible in such a way that as technology matures, and I mean, just a couple of days ago, we've seen that implementation issues with some of these threshold cryptography projects where there were a couple of bugs discovered. We want to make sure that we able to essentially adapt to these new developments, but we can move as fast as possible which is why we went with the very stable multi-sig approach, very like well-tested primitives, and then extend as time goes by and also grow above our 19 validators to further decentralize this layer of trust and also be able to connect more chains. Can you be more specific about the sorts of bugs that were found? And why is multi-sig supposed to be more secure? Essentially with multi-sig, uh, you're using the basic cryptographic primitive that you're using to sign any transaction. Essentially, in the end, when these 19 approved transactions, each of them just signs a single, let's say, virtual transaction. And then when you combine all of them and bring them to the blockchain, you say, okay, more than two thirds have actually signed. That is valid. So you need to bring all of these signatures on chain and you don't modify the cryptographic protocol. It doesn't look any different from you signing a single transaction. Then when we look at threshold cryptography, this is a more involved protocol where they perform a multi-party computation. Essentially, they all engage in a shared protocol. The shared protocol is the part where the danger lies. If there's a bug in the protocol, it could be that any of the participants tries to exfiltrate key information from others. And this is what uh, was the case here, that a small bug in this protocol essentially enabled a single participant or a group of participants to exfiltrate key information. And the difference with threshold cryptography is that not everyone individually just does their signature, but they all jointly produce one. So if someone is able to exfiltrate key material, they can in the end fake and compromise the system and produce a fake signature essentially or valid signature because they find that key material. So these protocols are novel. The protocol here was GG18. So that was merely three years old. And that's how a lot of these new cryptographic primitives have developed. There has been A lot of them developed recently, and I'm super excited that a lot of this development is happening in this multi-party commutation space, but I think a lot of these technologies will need to see a little bit more academic scrutiny and real-world application before I think they can power something that supports billions in assets. 
And this is why we've said, okay, we'll take the well-tested primitives that have been in essentially Bitcoin since its launch and rely on them. And then as technology evolves and stabilizes, we'll be able to transition into them. Not saying that they don't have advantages. They have clear advantages. You need to verify only a single signature versus uh, roughly 13, 14 with ours. So there are certain points where there can be improvements with this technology, and I'm super excited about it. And with multi-sig, you could sign non-interactively, as in asynchronously. Yes. And so that's exactly. a huge benefit to doing something like MPC. Yes. So isn't this model more trusted? It really isn't. I think we're limited in the sense of how many people we can have in our set of signers. With threshold cryptography, depending on which mechanism you're using, it scales really well because your computational and in the end transaction verification cost does increase with the number of signatures or participants. This is the big advantage you have there. But in terms of trust, oh, you if you have a set of 19, yeah, if you have a set of 19 doing threshold or you have a set of 19 doing multi-sig, you will end up with the same kind of trust relationships in that. And how does one become part of the signing set or a guardian, as you call it, as in a validator, right? A signer. In the current version of Wormhole, the set has been put together by Asset Launch. We voted these, essentially put these people in the beginning. And since then, the protocol is decentralized and governed by this council. They do all the contract upgrades. They need to always go through a two-thirds plus governance process to also change the set. And within this group, there's the ambition to move this model. And I think this is a natural and very positive development to move that into a DAO where there's a more decentralized governance process beyond these 19. But all of these 19 are very, like the, the actors with the highest reputation in the space, some of the largest validator companies, protocol foundations themselves. We feel very good also about the involvement of these parties and how they've helped move the protocol forward so far. And what was the biggest difference between V1 and V2? V1 essentially was in the beginning just capable of connecting two chains and V1 was just token bridging. V1 wasn't this low-level base communication layer, essentially internet. V1 was a very specific use case, bridging tokens in both directions. While with the V2, we offer this primitive that can be a base layer for IBC to connect between these chains we're connecting. Hop from Terra into Solana and connect Solana to the IBC ecosystem. This is now possible. And this is also why we've seen people starting to implement their own cross-chain swap protocols on top of this, why we've seen NFT bridging happen. And none of this needs to like involve the core team or the core contributors. This needs no protocol changes. They just utilize, just like with IBC, utilize the base layer that is there. And this is the key innovation in the V2. Permissionless innovation. How is this enabled? Is this through Cosmosm? that this is enabled? How is the IBC ecosystem able to be folded through Wormhole? The adapter is not out there and isn't live yet for IBC to connect to this. But given Terra, like the contracts for the Wormhole live in Cosmosm on Terra. And we've actually started and almost finished the implementation of a full Cosmos module that will enable full integration, like native integration of Cosmos zones with the wormhole and thus allow tunneling of IBC over wormhole messages. And this is how the connection will be made. And the wormhole protocol, we designed it to be super simple. So these integrations can be built very easily. With the module, like core Cosmos module, we're, we're making a big step in the direction of full IBC interoperability. Materially, does that mean that, or a chain, I mean, would have to be IBC enabled as in it has to have Stargate? Or would they just be able to plug into Wormhole without having IBC enabled, be able to plug into this bridgeability? Anything Cosmos SDK-based will be able to use this module to connect to Wormhole and the chain can speak IBC then by itself. I think the real important factor where the Wormhole comes in is bringing IBC to chains like Solana, to Ethereum, to Polygon, Avalanche, uh, Oasis is something we're, we're just about to add. And this is where essentially over the wormhole messages, IBC packets can flow. And then on our side as co-contributors, we're working on modules that will be able to make it easy for people on Solana to use IBC in the smart contract environment, on Ethereum to use IBC in the smart contract environment as if they were living in the Cosmos world and make essentially wormhole implementation detail. Ryan, I wanted to ask you, could you dive into the Columbus upgrade from Terra and what was the significance of that? 
There were basically two big things with Columbus. Well, one is that all smart contracts that would be deployed in Columbus would not be backwards compatible. So there was a lot of applications that were waiting for Columbus 5 to actually launch their own applications. So what ended up happening was once it was launched, now there's like a lineup of you know, dozens of different applications that are now launching uh, now. And then two, the biggest thing was just enabling IBC. So even though you know, Terra was kind of a Cosmos chain, it had not really been connected to the ecosystem beyond just having used the Cosmos SDK to build their chain and using Tendermint for consensus. Those are the two you know, biggest things that uh, you know, really Columbus 5 brought to the table. If a chain would like to be a net exporter of their native asset, it sounds like it can, but what about being an importer? So Terra actually plugged in Cosmosm, but it did not enable the IBC function. And so they're kind of like a siloed ecosystem in that sense, but they're okay with exporting UST. Could chains that want to turn off transactions coming into their chain do that? Or is it just like open, you know, two ways? Can, you know, is it gated one way or another? Can it be? I wasn't under the impression that you could gate it one way or another. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. For Tara's case, I'd, I'd be surprised if they did gate it both ways, because I think there's, there's two reasons. For one, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of benefits to being able to export USC across chain, right? It can go and be the dominant stablecoin of, say, Osmosis Zone and kind of the Cosmos ecosystem, be the dominant chain or decentralized stablecoin on Solana, which today doesn't really have a, a premier decentralized stablecoin. The benefits are, to exporting are, are clear. I think when it comes to importing, it's also helpful as well because there's so many different assets, I think, within, say, the Cosmos ecosystem that can now be used as collateral on all the different applications within this Terra ecosystem. So you had a staking position in a Cosmos hub, and now you could put that into Anchor and then borrow USD against that position, right? That's kind of one example of where you would actually want to have imported assets as, as well. I'm not quite sure if it, technically you can do that, but if you could, I'm not sure why, why you'd want it. I don't actually think any chain would want to necessarily. That's not really a key feature. It was just uh, mostly an observation about what they've done in the past. We've talked a lot about how wormhole can be utilized for DeFi purposes and you know doing stuff like cross-chain yield farming. And maybe there's some sort of yield aggregation and in the future we could have some like cross-chain DEX aggregation. That stuff is all coming down the pipeline. It's very exciting. But what about smart contract calls cross-chain? What about um, sending NFTs cross-chain? You know, could we do collateralization of NFTs and then fractionalizing them and then sending them across wormhole through these various ecosystems? What are the possibilities? High level. The high level easy answer is yes, <laughs> all of that is possible. And NFTs is actually possible right now. The team's actually right now working on the NFT integration for the Terra ecosystem, where there's now a standard and a growing NFT ecosystem, but between Solana and the EVM, so Polygon, Ethereum, uh, BSC, between these worlds, NFTs already flow over the wormhole. I don't see why they won't then flow into, into Terra very soon as well. So this is quite exciting. And then on all the other opportunities, so with yield farming, cross-contract calls, the cross-contract calls is something that we really heavily debate internally because this is something a lot of people ask about. This is something that is intrinsically super complex because you have the whole cross-chain gas fee dynamic of when I make a call now on Terra into Ethereum, how can I be guaranteed that by the moment the block is produced, like gas fees haven't spiked to like two times of what I was willing to pay. So there's a lot of complexity in these calls. What I actually expect is a lot of the complexity to be abstracted away from users. Essentially, yield being tokenized, uh, yield being handled by protocols that abstract the, the cross-chain logic away from you. They utilize cross-chain token transfers they utilize cross-chain messaging as we provide and SIBC provides to essentially enable their protocols. But to the user, they maybe even won't be making the move across the chains. That will all be handled in the background for them. I think this is really where we are going in the long run as user experience becomes better and as these message passing technologies get more adopted. Absolutely. I'm of the impression that any crypto project that solves this UX problem that sufficiently abstracts the underlying blockchains away from the user 
such that all the user has to do is toggle their preferences, right? Say like, oh, here's my risk profile. I am risk averse. And here's my preference for decentralization. I want like more trustless. I just toggle these things. And then the UI is able to figure this out for them and then decide the best route and the most efficient, capital efficient route for them to hop in between chains. You have Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and a bunch of other VMs already integrated on Wormhole. Can you dive deeper into that? So currently we're live on Binance Smart Chain, ETH, Polygon, Solana, Terra. What is coming very soon is, is also Avalanche, um, Oasis, and we're also making the bridge into more of the newly upcoming uh, and connectable uh, Polkadot ecosystem. Integration is actually fairly easy. And with the Wormhole, uh, there's an interesting detail in there's essentially a Wormhole light integration that you can do in that you can always receive Wormhole messages. You don't need to integrate with the validator set, with the guardians in order to receive messages. All you need to do is essentially know who are these guardians, essentially follow governance and read one and be able to decode wormhole messages. So any EVM chain out there can already do that. Any uh, Cosmos chain that builds in the module can do that. Any Cosmosm chain deploying the smart contract that is in the repo can do that already. And then they connect to the wormhole peer-to-peer network. The moment someone sends a message, they receive it and they relay it to that chain. That is possible without an active integration. The active integration is then if the chain should be able to send messages, because then we need to establish consensus. Then the guardians, the validators need to observe that chain to be able to validate these messages that are coming out. But I think this is quite interesting because we've seen a protocol like PIF that is um, an Oracle protocol hosted on Solana that is producing wormhole messages consistently on uh, price feeds. These messages essentially get broadcasted out And anyone can already receive them over the wormhole trust to see, which is quite exciting because already that can be a a huge value add to a new and upcoming ecosystem that wants to tap into these feeds. As adoption matures, we're obviously looking, and and I think the, the wormhole guardians are super excited about adding more and more high value networks. What it sounds like wormhole does very simply is just a blockchain that integrates various incompatible state machines. State machines like the EVM and alternative EVMs like the Cosmos SDK framework, as well as Cosmosm. And it just runs all those on top of your consensus layer. And I believe your consensus layer is just a proof of authority, right? Because it's a multi-sig? Essentially, yeah. It's proof of authority. We can plug into essentially everything that can run smart contracts should theoretically be able to verify wormhole messages or emit some kind of information for the guardians to observe. So we can really tap into all of them. It's just a matter of A, uh, guardians running more nodes and essentially expanding their reach and in operation and chains uh, rolling out these integrations and building these smart contracts. Exactly. Yeah, if it's proof of authority, then there's no token, right? There is no token uh, for the wormhole. Obviously, I think at some point that moving from essentially proof of authority to a more decentralized ecosystem is something that is going to be exciting for the guardians and for the ecosystem as a whole. As I said, moving to more of like further cryptographic primitives, it's going to be exciting to bring more people in. At some point, I think it's a natural development to move to something that is DAO-based vote, uh, in, like voting in an open DAO, enabling all kinds of actors to be involved in decisions. And at the same time, also opening up this set of validators to more participants. And I think that's going to be a natural development. But right now, this is the proof of authority set. What incentivizes the guardians to run their notes? without any compensation in like a token. In the V1 model, and that kind of reached a bit into the V2, there's been a grant given out to the guardians to incentivize them for operations. And at the same time, uh, in the beginning, what was really important to us is when putting together this proof of authority set, we wanted to have a lot of the like very highly reputable actors in, part of them, as I said, being foundations. So obviously, all of them have a strong vested ecosystem in growing these ecosystems they are connecting to, allowing capital to flow in. We all know the validators these days. They all have become a bit of VCs as well. So there's a strongly vested interest in a lot of them 
to help capital flow in. And in the case of Terra with UST, actually to flow out as well. So uh, the incentives on that layer have worked out extremely well. But as we are progressing on, as I said, with a move to a DAO, I think there's going to be more exciting uh, models that the community will work out and that will get implemented. So it's the foundations of those ecosystems themselves that are the guardians. Some of them. So you've got 19 signers, right? We've got 19 signers. It's the 19 signers govern the protocol, the 19 signers operate the nodes and run the network, essentially. That's some of the biggest validators in the ecosystem, in the proof-of-stake ecosystem as a whole, I, I suppose, because there's a lot of overlap there. Yes, exactly. We got a lot of the large players and a lot of uh, our early friends um, as well that we've been working with in the proof-of-stake ecosystem that we know are really active when working with protocols. And so we've, we've also been, like, we appreciate the support a lot that lo- and, and the effort that a lot have put into helping improve the protocol and onboard new protocols at a really fast pace. And we start with just Solana, ETH, and, and BSC. And now we've onboarded, I think they've already onboarded three more nodes already. With, I mentioned uh, Terra and, and Polygon, but also a, a couple more networks already in the background. And it's just really amazing to see how quickly we can move there with the support. So let's start with the genesis of this project. Was this commissioned by Solana Foundation as a grant? And then at what point did Jump Trading enter the picture and acquire Certus One? You know, is there any connection between those? So the Wormhole V1 uh, got created because... <laughs> Actually, the, the, the inception of the Wormhole V1, I think the whole story from then on is, is, a, is a very interesting one of organic growth started with Anatoly, uh, CEO of Solana, calling us up on a, on a Saturday morning being like, hey, hey guys, we got this big decentralized exchange that wants to, this big player in the space that wants to build a decentralized exchange. We need assets. You guys know the protocol really well. Can you build a bridge? And we're like, okay, we've looked a lot into, into Interchain. We, we've looked a lot into Solana and have built smart contracts before. So this kind of came naturally. So we started building that under a grant then independently of that, uh, on our organization, the acquisition by Jump happened. And right around that time, we got a lot of inbound interest of, hey, we want to we wanna transfer more than just coins. We want to have more networks connected. We want to build cross-chain swaps. Can you just do the messaging? Can you enable us to build on top? And we're like, oh, we haven't thought about that in the V1. The V1 was essentially a race to get this out in time as Project Serum was launching and a lot of the DEX projects were launching on Solana. So we're like, okay, we need to get back to the drawing board. And we got and 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 since then, with all of the networks launching, etc., it's really a story of organic growth into these 900 million. So you mentioned we don't have a token. Still, we have these about 900 million in TVL of, of active capital that is being deployed in all of these ecosystems. And I think this is really at the core of the project, listening to the community and building in new features, expanding to be the space layer to them. Yeah. It, so just to touch on jump trading a little bit, they're the <laughs> biggest OTC desk in TradFi, right? Why did they acquire a proof of stake validator company? I don't know about the biggest OTC. I know that Jump, as, as an organization, is one of the largest traders in various asset classes, is obviously well known for the trading part. Uh, more recently, uh, there's been the, the public move of saying, hey, uh, we, we are Jump Crypto. There's been a rebranding because in the organization, I think about roughly one and a half to two years ago, there's been a shift from we are traders to, okay, this space is growing so rapidly, contrary to a lot of the traditional finance markets. This is a space where we can actually, by bringing in our experience, by bringing in our tech talent, and trade, trading firms have, have some of the, the best talent in the world. It's, it's really amazing with like seeing that from, from the inside and being able to work with these people. That was really the movement, okay, we can contribute and we can help grow the pie for everyone and build exciting stuff. And this was when... Uh, Jump started to become more active in uh, protocol development, in um, helping design economics, in making open source contributions. And Certus One, us being active contributors to a lot of protocols, bringing in the security angle, bringing in the infrastructure part, has really been essentially a match made in heaven. And that was how this whole thing came to be. Essentially, we, we knew each other because uh, Jump had been a customer before. 
and we explored some of the same ecosystems. We saw a lot of synergy potential. And what we really realized is we could move a lot faster with the whole jump machinery behind behind essentially the, the Certus ideas of like open community contributions and just building and technical excellence. And that's really been the case. Uh, since we were here, all the efforts just really got fueled up with rocket fuel and have been executed faster than ever. We grew the team really, really extensively. And I think this is why we can actually make these contributions and help build these protocols now. Yeah, okay. So it seems like this wormhole effort is going to be one of the biggest bridges uh, out there, I would say, right? Because it's plugging in all these different ecosystems, the biggest ones. That makes this thing all the more important. And again, I want to touch on the trust model, which is, you know, proof of authority. Obviously, it's reputation-based, which means it's totally trusted, right? It's, But at the same time, there's nothing legally regulating them from doing anything. So, you know, this is the same question that I asked Sergey from Axelar, yeah. which is this the edge case where you've got 19 signers and whatever your threshold scheme is, N of M, if N of them collude and say, we're going to we're just going to equivocate because there's a bunch of money right now under custody on this bridge and we're just going to run away with it. And there's no recourse for that in in a proof of authority model. So how do you reconcile that? And what's the future roadmap that's going to make this more trust minimized? You know, it's because it's such a key bridge, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's that's what it's aiming to be, this key piece of infrastructure. And I think the the essentially security budget will need to be huge as... Like we've grown organically to to these eight nine hundred million, and I think it's going to grow even more rapidly as as more people utilize the protocol, as more people like UST use it to go cross chain. Essentially, using this as the emission mechanism to go cross chain instead of relying all of the liquidity fragmentation and like hundreds of smaller bridges out there. So. Um, right now, this is one interesting consideration. I like a, a bit of a, a thought that that. We're also having a lot in that these players, they're all publicly known. They all are institutions with, in the end, significant market capitalizations themselves. So there's ex- like extensive um, reputational risk to them and in turn, monetary risk to them. This is hard to mathematically prove, but if someone colludes in our multi-six scheme, it's going to be obvious who it was and we'll know exactly where their offices are. And I think there's going to be little legal, like legal room for them to argue that this was the intention of the protocol, as the protocol is well defined in how it works. Uh, not threatening anyone, but I think there's just a legal reality of what is going on. And with these institutions having like billions of dollars of valuation partially, this is, I think, unviable. But hey, we, we're also talking about key compromise. It doesn't need to be intentional. This is something in proof of stake, I think that we talked about a lot in the very early days of Cosmos. And like, how do we secure these keys? How do we make sure no one can compromise the validators or silently collect a third or two thirds plus of of, uh, voting power just in terms of private keys? So we know we need to make uh, the set bigger. And I think at some point there's probably going to be a model token-based or whatever to allow um, staking and uh, put economic security behind it, put an insurance model behind it. Um, nothing of that has been has been fleshed out. Nothing of that has happened. And I think in the end, it's going to depend on what the, the guardians that have the best interests of the network in their, in their minds uh, will decide as they govern the protocol. But I think there's been a lot of discussions around these mechanisms. I think right now in this high growth and let's say high risk phase of rolling up new networks, Everyone feels extremely comfortable with that set and with that set of securities. I think a lot of people feel more safe looking at this of like, okay, there's 18 well-trusted entities that in the end, and this is an interesting consideration, also run these chains that we're connecting to. If excluded, if you have some of the biggest validators operating your network, there's a good chance they also collectively hold about one third or even potentially more on the chains that we're connected to. So a lot of like, a lot of people feel very comfortable with that in this high growth phase. And as 
we essentially like see all of these metrics developing, see um, what the like security parameters need to be. I think there's going to be natural development. This again plays into the organic growth, into the organic development. Same with multi-sig instead of threshold signature. Seeing what is actually necessary and what is the best thing to implement and then adopting it instead of going into extremes. And I think we found a good middle way for this growth phase and we're constantly monitoring metrics. There's constantly this discussion going on in the community and it would be really sad if it dried down and we're trying to keep it active that these developments happen as they make sense. Yeah, this is an interesting permutation of how you could do cross-chain securely. So yeah. this proof of authority of model is really novel because I haven't seen any other bridge do this. And I want to bring up interchain staking because, you know, in in the very early V0 iterations of how we were talking about designing interchain staking is that let's say you have the atom and it, you know, it's the native staking token of the Cosmos hub. And if it is interchain staked to a bridge or other yeah. um, blockchain, right? If that chain equivocates, they would get slashed on the like home hub. And <laughs> yeah. so I, I think that model is really interesting and it should be explored. But yeah, this proof of authority model is definitely a different, like an alternative solution to it. But yeah. I would like to and see both of these explored. It's, it's part of um, trying to start from simple primitives of if you explain a cryptocurrency or a, a crypto newbie, essentially, hey, these are 19 logos, you need to trust about, like you need to trust at least one third plus of them and your money is not going to be lost. That's a great explanation. And people can see why this is, why this can have these guarantees as long as you trust these uh, parties. As we go further, and I think CrossChain really has this issue of what is the security budget? Uh, what does the security budget need to be? There's 800 million in TVL, but still, these bridges can also mint new wrapped assets. So the actual number that the security budget would need to be would need to be much larger because, for example, UST is accepted as collateral. So someone could just bridge another 500 million of UST into ETH and put them into a lending protocol and pull money out. So um, as these develop, it's, it's really hard to programmatically put them down, especially in cross-chain. And a lot of these mechanisms are really hard to understand and really hard to get right. So this is also, and, and, and this is, I think, how we think similarly to, to a lot of the Cosmos ecosystem in that we really like to go to the drawing board, figure it out properly, and then roll it out as, as these developments um, make sense. Yeah, and my hat's off to you for designing these protocols because you'd have to really be extremely terrific mechanism designer to be able to see five steps down the road, especially as yeah. these daisy chain attacks become more prolific, right? And especially yeah. as as more of these protocols get more interconnected. Going back to UST, Brian, I want to ask you about the Terra ecosystem. You're more familiar with that out of all three of us, I believe. So there's a UST bounty, right? That's happening for using Wormhole. Are you familiar with that? I think I think in in general, though, uh, you know, whether it's a bounty to use UST through Wormhole or incentives to use UST, say, like in a liquidity pool on Solana or like say like Curve on Ethereum, I think in general, like uh, Terraform Labs is thinking about different ways that they can promote UST adoption uh, cross chain. And in many ways, like they're thinking about different ways of just. I mean, it is like liquidity mining in a sense, but there's different ways of using, you know, incentives to just get people to go and, and use it. So I think that regardless of what the, the bounty actually is, I think it's, it fits within the, the broader story of just incentivizing UST adoption, incentivizing people to really just get comfortable using some of these 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 bridges. And I think that's and it's a good point because, you know, one thing that I really appreciate the way that Wormhole has went about building their bridge is that. Uh, even though you know you can look at it right now and say, okay, it's a it's a multi-sig with just 19 signers that are permissioned. Well, the reality is that actually it, it works and like it's reliable. And one of the problems with the many bridges that we've seen so far is that it's really hard to get right. And I mean, there's been countless bridges that have been hacked so far. And the more we want to build these multi-chain applications and and move all these assets across chain. We're going to need things that are reliable and that people can trust. And when every single bridge is getting hacked, it just really gets people you know, scared to use some of these bridges. And not just users, but also developers actually build crossing functionality through applications as, as well. So, yeah, I think that that's really, to me, what the, the bounty is, is likely about fitting within the broader story. Like, how do we get people to get comfortable actually using multi-chain? 
What were the bridges that were hacked? So there was Thorchain has been hacked, AnySwap has been hacked, uh, Synapsis has been hacked, and a handful of others, which I'm just you know drawing a blank on. But I mean, it's there was a time when I felt like every week was just like a new bridge I was being hacked, and uh, it's pretty disappointing because this is an area that I'm very excited about. Some of those are DEXs, right? So are you using mm-hmm. them synonymously with bridges? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Because I mean, in many cases, like say, you know, for the, they are bring they're in a sense building their own like bridge to connect to right. different uh, chains. Yeah, especially right. for cross chain. Yeah. Can you talk more about why they got hacked? They they're sort of honeypots, right? But the dexes are the honeypots, and so if if the dex and the bridge were decoupled, like wormhole or axlar, because like neither of those have uh, dexes running on top of them, are they less susceptible to being hacked? So it'd be interesting getting Hendrick's perspective on this, but to me, I would think not necessarily. To me, it's more so about if the bridge is just holding assets, then it's vulnerable, right? And and that's really you know what we were talking about when you were thinking about you know how how large a security budget do we need if we have say eight hundred million dollars in total value locked in this bridge? Really, what it's a story about is like how do we create a system where no matter how many assets ultimately get custodied by this bridge, we can still in a reasonable argument that these assets are going to be safely secure. For that, you need like a budget that is in excess of the amount of assets that are in, in this bridge. Otherwise, you know, in theory, the validators could just collude to steal the assets in the bridge and, and go home and, and make a lot of money. So I think that it's more, more so a concern about you know, whether these bridges are custodial or not. Yeah, and I would add to that question, Hendrik, which is, is wormhole custodial? And if it is... The way I imagine it working is I have Cosmos Hub Atom. I want it to like transfer it to Solana. So I send Atom to Wormhole. Wormhole guardians convert that or they take the Atom, right? It's custodied on, a, on some sort of wallet that they own on the Cosmos Hub. And then they turn around and mint like Solana Atom on Solana. Is that any point wormhole custodying any assets? So in the clearest terms, I would say uh, it, it's clearly not custodial as a protocol because it's a message passing protocol. So it's essentially the, the mailman, uh, the delivery service that is connecting token, essentially token bridge contracts on both of the sides. These token bridge contracts themselves that encode this protocol of if I get a wormhole message, I am emitting a wrapped asset. If I receive a local asset, I'm going to custody as a contract the asset, send a wormhole message to another of these contracts. In that sense, these contracts hold the assets. That is correct. Um, they don't get burned if you put an atom in or if you put a UST and the TerraSide in, the token bridge contract is going to hold that. It's going to emit a wormhole message. That wormhole message is going to be received, for example, on Solana. And it's going to mint a wrap representation, which is essentially a ticket to later claim the original again. Um, in the wormhole world, one, one thing that is quite cool is that they are all compatible. So the moment you have a wrapped asset on Solana, you can send that to ETH, you can send that to Polygon, and then back to Terra. You're always going to get back your coins. There's no double wrapping or anything. So that is quite nice, especially for tokens like UST that want to go cross-chain. Once you decide for wormhole to go cross-chain, you're going to be universally compatible. But the guardians themselves don't hold a wallet. The guardians merely observe events and sign them. The notion of coins, etc., is is not part of the wormhole protocol. So they wouldn't know. If, like if they were blind to the blockchains, all they would say is messages coming in in one mailbox, and they would put it in another one. Understood. So is wormhole currently being used between Ethereum and Polygon, for example, or do they have their own? bridging protocol? Like Polygon has a native bridge that's native to the protocol. Still, people are using Wormhole to, for example, and I think this is where a lot of the bridge debate lives and why there's a lot of cross-chain swap protocols. Wrapped asset bridging is not useful in some cases, very useful in others. For example, if you want to take ETH from Ethereum into Polygon, um, you'd be better off taking Polygon ETH because that has all the liquidity pools on the other side. With Wormhole, you're going to end up with a second version of ETH on Polygon that is not the native asset if you use the token bridge. 
on top of Wormhole, you could build such a cross-chain swap protocol. But actually, as we go forward and as these protocols, let's say, go out of their growth phase, um, where, I mean, the uh, some of these bridges have been built semi-centrally. If we look at the AVAX bridge, I think it's three signers that are all closed peers or, or four signers. I, I don't want to say anything wrong here. Don't. That's why it's that. so instant, um, <laughs> but it's very um, good. But it's very fast. It's It's been a great growth hack for them. But I see a lot of these protocols that now have a, let's say, canonical representation of foreign chains coins later transition into decentralized bridges. So all of these cross-chain swaps, as we've talked about them, cross-chain DEXs that get hacked. For a lot of use cases, I think they're a temporary, like just stopgap solution that is capital inefficient, where later a lot of chains are just going to natively adopt the strongest bridge protocol that is there. And ideally, um, more emitters of assets would go ahead and make their assets essentially cross-chain compatible from the get-go. They would go to, they would mint in the Cosmos world, have their native representation in the IBC world, and then use Wormhole to go cross-chain and have their canonical representation on all these chains. So in that sense, yes, users useless, especially with UST. Um, between these chains, some of them have created liquidity pools where it makes sense to bridge certain assets from ETH to Polygon. But I think it's still very intransparent. And I'm hoping to, like, for example, that's what Terra did. They had the shuttle bridge, which was a centralized bridge for UST and bringing assets in. And they essentially migrated from shuttle to wormhole to um, move the trust away from the centralized party into the decentralized protocol. And I think, I hope that more of this is going to happen as a lot of these protocols mature and, and develop further. Yeah, you alluded to this a little bit, but I want to just expound on it, which is fungibility, right? Because yeah. it really hurts fungibility depending on what bridge you use. And right now, as you said, Polygon native bridge ETH is not equal to wormhole ETH. How is that reconciled? I guess uh, it currently isn't right now, but I guess, you know, in the future. I think we're going to reconcile, like, as these pick a decentralized chain, essentially, these protocols. And I think it's, and, and some of them won't need to. Some of them, like, like L2s, which is one of the primary targets, I think there's going to be fast paths that, but in the end, they're anchored into ETH. So there's going to be bridges that make use of this primitive, of this essentially mechanism that gives finality and gives a native ability for them to bridge. But this is a small part of the world right now. There's this large part of different L1s, and I think that's going to continue thriving, in which there's going to be these protocols essentially offering up migrations. And I think one of the major carriers of liquidity, I think... There's a good chunk that is these native tokens, but I think the, the long tail and the large chunks of what you, users use to bridge between these chains are stable coins. And a lot of them are centrally emitted. And I expect cross-chain solutions to be made to be made available by them. Where then you can utilize, let's say you go with um, USDT or, or, or USDC and you want to bridge that between chains. And that's kind of your one leg. And they will provide that for you. And then you use a cross-chain messaging protocol to initiate a swap on the other side. And you always have liquidity against the stables. This is something where I think that a lot of cross-chain swap protocols will tap into just the fact that there's going to be compatibility. Because USDC on one chain is just USDC on the other. USDT on one chain is just USDT on the other. So I expect them to be a major part of creating this fungibility as the main trade lag instead of more and more bridges trying to vampire attack liquidity away from each other. And then, as I said, more coins choosing to go with a bridge to essentially be native cross-chain and do that, just like UST. And I think UST is a success story in that sense, in that I think it's one of the assets with the least amount of confusion in the ecosystem of what is the, the correct version of the asset and of now that like we're still in migration, obviously, there has been the old centralized bridge coin. But with that coin, it's accessible everywhere. It's fungible between chains. And I think that's the best you can do in terms of user experience. So, yeah, you talked about, I guess, two alternative paths, or it, it could be, you know, one and the other, which is one path is there's going to be DEX aggregation and UI is built on top that you know, creates fungibility as an added layer on top of these underlying protocols that aggregates liquidity on top of all these DEXs. The other 
is that we are seeing a Cambrian explosion of bridges right now, and they're all competing with one another. But I believe over time, let's say like five, 10 years from now, as these things mature, we're really ultimately going to converge on like one or two good ones. It's going to be similar to how everyone just converged on like, you know, five different big tech platforms to kind of hang <laughs> yeah. out and online over time, right? That's just a natural way of things. Yeah, and I hope they're going to all be trust minimized, even the wormhole. If I draw a long-term roadmap, then in the very, very long term, the wormhole is always going to connect those where you can't reasonably build a light client or easily light client. But it's going to involve more of actual light client work where we can replace a trusted set because it's just a natural evolution. And I think having such a flexible, versatile protocol is how we're trying to to set up the protocol for not just a temporary win where we vampire, vampire attack a bit of liquidity away and have a nice TBL for a short period, but where we set up interchain and a very thriving and world of fungible coins for the very long term. Excellent. And so with that, I think we have learned a lot about how this bridge is going to be compatible with IBC, how it's different and how it's going to be a pretty key piece of core infrastructure for this entire like Web3 internet blockchains vision to, to evolve. So great. Yeah. Thank you too for being here. Do you guys have closing remarks and where people can find you on socials? Closing remark here is this all is only possible if we have exciting projects integrating. And there's a lot of projects and inbound interest that we're getting. But if you're building something that wants to go cross-chain, even outside the IBC ecosystem, want to, wants to tap into this potential or want to help with the IBC integration, you should totally check out Wormhole and reach out to us. We're super excited to, to be working with you on, on these kind of things uh, as we grow further and expand. You'll find us at, at, at Wormhole Crypto on Twitter. You can just send a DM or send a DM to me, Hendrik Hofstad, on Twitter. Thanks for us. Uh, so I'm sorry we, we've covered interchain uh, kind of interoperability uh, extensively, I think most recently in our 2022 DC. So definitely check that out. Uh, otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter at RyanWalkins underscore. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I sincerely hope you found the information contained in it educational and useful for your personal learning development. I understand that the space moves so fast and there's too much information to digest sometimes. My goal with Interchain FM is to serve only the highest signal information in easy to digest courses so that you're not overwhelmed with TMI and leave only with context that matters. Interchain FM airs live every Thursday on my Twitter handle at C-H-J-A-N-G-O or on Chango and Chain's YouTube channel. If you miss our live sessions, you won't miss a single episode when you visit interchain.fm. I hope to see you at the next show.